Okay, so we've been in this series now four weeks going through the big themes of the Bible from cover to cover. And this whole series has been about creating a new and a deeper hunger and an understanding of the Bible. So here's what we know so far in this series. God wants to bring his rule to earth through human beings. And like we learned in this series, uh, in week one, Adam was created and yet failed at bringing that rule. And then God called a man named Abraham, and through Abraham, he built a nation called Israel, and Israel failed at that. And that's where we landed last week, at a pivot point in the story, when God sent his son to do what? Remember? A new beginning on God's original plan. The plan didn't change, but a new beginning was ready. And so the divine son became the human Jesus. He lived, he died, he resurrected from the dead, and soon after launched his church through his original disciples with these instructions. Take the message to the ends of the earth. So today, I want to wrestle with a question, and that is this question. What makes the church, that's you and me, if we believe and follow Jesus, we're part of the church, historical global church. What makes the church God's hope of the world? Think about it. How will the church be successful where Adam, Abraham, and Israel were not? Now, I want to answer that question today in three major ways. They're not the only ways, but they are going to be the major ways that we look at today. So let's get started. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bible or in your Bible application. As always, we have uh, teaching notes up on the YouVersion app. You can look at those right now. Um, I was at the beach a couple weeks ago, and my wife and I took different approaches getting out uh, over the sand dunes onto the beach. Uh, She wore flip-flops, and she loves to wear flip-flops and sandals and and all that. I I, I just, I can't do it. And so I wore hiking shoes. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Like, are you kidding me? Like, how out of place, how ridiculous. You might as well have worn socks up to your knees with those. And and I understand that. It's like, you know, going to a ski lodge with a surfboard. You know, hey, look at the loser with the surfboard. And yet, and yet, my decision paid off. Because as soon as my wife's feet hit the scorching sand, she screamed out, please carry me. That's right. That's right. Suddenly, suddenly I was very useful in that moment. Not ridiculous, but useful. And so I offered my back to her as a good husband would and should, and I carried her over the dunes and down into the cooler sand. And I was a hero as I should be. Sometimes though, and here's what I want you to think of, sometimes that's what it's like being a part of the church, being one of these people who believe and follow Jesus among others who do the same. If you believe and follow Jesus and you let that really affect your life, like it's changing the way you think, feel, act, and the way you speak, sometimes it just seems weird, maybe even out of place to people at first. Like, really? Like, I mean, you're going to make that kind of decision? Really? You're going to say that? But then, then we live our life and, and then alongside of people who are living their life differently than us. And when life gets tough or gets unclear for someone else close to us 
who doesn't believe and follow Jesus, who doesn't understand this whole church thing, what do they do sometimes? They move towards you. They move towards me. They move towards us because of what we've been wearing every day that they've known us. Something they thought might have been weird or kind of your thing now suddenly becomes very relevant to them. And here's the key, and we're going to see this today. The key is that this is how we know who we are and who we are not. And we're going to see this today in these three things. Who, what does it mean to be the church? And why are we, if we're part of the church and living that out, the hope of the world? But also, what happens when we stay near people who don't believe and follow Jesus? We don't, we don't push them away. We don't go just live among other people wearing hiking shoes on the beach. No, we're right there alongside them. We're going to see the impact that that has when we are ready to carry some people in the moment, in the moment that their life intersects with the gospel. Today, we're going to look at three major ways being the church will make you stand out in the culture that is getting crazier and less clear and how to be relevant in that and how to be hope in that. Also, we're going to see that these ways make us ready to invite new people into God's rescue plan. So that brings us to Hebrews chapter 10. Here's a little setup. Here's what's going on in Hebrews. Hebrews is a letter written by a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians, which is why we get the name Hebrews, right? <laughs> Makes sense. This is, this is where we're going to see and where we're going to find the answers. Not the only ways, but three major ways that the church is the hope of the world. So the content is all about connecting the dots. The content in, in the book of Hebrews is all about connecting the dots between two things. The Hebrew Old Testament covenant of Israel, the history and the laws of Israel, connecting that to Jesus Christ coming and to his church. So this whole letter is loaded with Old Testament uh, references, allusions, allegories, and so on, that the Jewish readers or anybody hearing this would quickly start to connect the dots. Oh, he's talking about a priest there. He's talking about this kind of sacrifice there. Oh, and he's pointing it to Jesus. So let's jump in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Here's what it says. And by that will, we have been made Holy, what does that mean? We've been made right. We've been made complete through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then he contrasts that. Remember, there's a connecting of the dots. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. What is he talking about? He's talking about the priests uh, of the temple and how Jesus is different. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins can never take away. So the writer connects the dots to the sacrificial Old Testament system with Jesus' literal death on a cross. Now, I want you to catch something. Religious duties never take away sin. Did you catch that? Only Jesus takes away sin once for all. But why? Why can't, I mean, why can't religious duties take away sin? I mean, that's, I think there's something religious in all of us. Something in all of us that says, man, I just want to have it together. I want to be competent enough 
to, to, to be holy on my own. And here's why. Because religious duty is driven by outward performance. Here's what I'm doing outwardly. But my outward performance usually isn't the big problem. It's my inward motivation. It's my inward self-worship that pushes me away from God. The Bible tells us from cover to cover that God is after our hearts, our character, and our will. And our actions, they are important, but they are what follows the heart. They're what follows the heart of transformation. It's not, I'm going to act this way outwardly and transform inwardly. No, it's the opposite. It is, I am transforming inwardly, and therefore, even the motivations of my actions have transformed as well. So, in contrast, religious duty feeds my self-worship, and it clouds my heart with pride and protection instead of the most important ingredients to God, and that is humility and surrender. Those two things, humility and surrender, they are magnets towards the favor of God. And so that begins to answer the very first of these three things that makes the church of the hope of the world. I want you to write these down. Here we go. Number one, the church is built upon internal transformation, not external performance. Why does that matter? Because you can hand anybody a book of rules from any world religion, and it'll change their outward behavior, some for a while, and others for life. Religion feeds our need for structure and self-reliance and self-rescue. Not to mention, you know, getting together with other people, our, our common community. I want to be around other people like this. But the dark side of religion is pride, it's comparison, it's fear. Those things push away God, they push love out of the room and they push away or cloud our need for surrender, our need to say at some point, I have got to have some help. I can't do this. I'm a, religion doesn't let you surrender because you keep up your own agenda. You keep up your own ability to be competent for yourself for others, and ultimately for God. You know, God, I got this. I got this. And we can't surrender, and we can't finally just be humble in who we are. The church is built upon Jesus doing the work, not us doing the work. And that changes everything, Brentwood Church. It means our new spiritual condition is one of complete righteousness and holiness. Remember I said, we're made holy, we're made complete. That's already been done. The internal transformation of our spirit happened at the point of belief in the gospel. And we spend the rest of our lives allowing those truths to transform and renew our minds, our hearts, and ultimately our actions and our words. Our lives are one big response to the finished work of Christ. It's done. The work is done. And so that transformation flows out. That gratitude, that humility, that surrender changes the way we act. It's like this. If I were constantly holding forgiveness and love over my kid's head until they perform to my standards, you know, nope, I don't love you. You gotta do this. Here's my, here's my list. Nope, can't forgive you. You got you to gotta, you get this done and maybe, just maybe, I'll forgive you. If I were making them earn my affection by seeking perfection, you got to do this just right or else. 
then all of that performance, what would it produce? Distance and resentment, resistance and rebellion, instead of what I ultimately want, which is mutual affection. But the opposite is also true. If I love my children first, if I forgive them when they ask, not when they act, then love binds us together instead of law pulling us apart. And that makes total sense in the sense of parenting. Why is it any different with God? It's not. So let's keep going. What's next? The gospel narratives tells us something. That after Jesus rose from the dead, he gave his disciples final instructions to build his church. And then he ascended into heaven. But have you ever wondered, what is Jesus doing in the meantime? Like, what's Jesus doing right now? Well, here's what he's doing. Look, verse 12. But when this priest, Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. Let me talk about this for just a second. Right now, Jesus is being a priest, a go-between in the position of the right hand of God. What is, what is the right hand of God? It just means the position of power and authority. And that very truth should embolden you as somebody who believes and follows Jesus. Jesus isn't just some human man that cracked the code on a perfect life and died. No, instead, he's the divine son of God representing our salvation before a holy God, before our heavenly father. But what he writes next is sobering. So that's where Jesus is right now. But what's happening in the meantime? Verse 13. And since that time, since Jesus is gone and he's at the right hand of the Father, he waits. So he's, he's just waiting, just hanging out, waiting. For what? For his enemies to be made his footstool. So Jesus waits while his enemy is battled and weakened until someday he returns to give the final death blow to his enemy. Okay, wait a minute. You mean Jesus went to heaven to be at the right hand of God, position of power and authority. Well, who's fighting it out with the enemy? Well, that's where the church comes in. And that's how we continue to answer the question, what makes the church the hope of the world. That brings us to number two. Write this down. The church knows the real enemy and takes back his territory every day. Oh, come on. Yes. If you're new to church in the Bible, that might have made your head spin right there. But hang with me. Hang with me here. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa what just happened? Are we talking about you know, Satan and demons? Yes, we are. From cover to cover, the Bible tells us that the real enemy is not other sinful, broken people or other groups of sinful, broken people. That is, just, that is just the symptom. That's just the exterior of an inner enemy. No, when someone sins against you, it's because he or she believes the lie about God's character and about their identity, whispered to them by an enemy, sometimes from generation to generation, stronghold to stronghold. Listen, it is not personal. I want you to say this with me. It's not personal. Go ahead, say it. It's not personal. It's not. 
When somebody blows up at you at Walmart, when somebody cuts you off, when your sister calls you up and gives you a piece of her mind, and when everything blows up at work and the people are all gossiping, it's, it's not personal. There is an enemy at work, and he is whispering lies. The church knows who the real enemy is, and it's not people. And what does that do? That frees us up to pray for people, to love people, difficult people, annoying people, our enemies. Because why? Because they're not the enemy. The church knows who the real enemy is. And they're taking back his territory every day. And man, when you get a hold of that, you can walk into some craziness and be that. Be a drama killer, if you will. Have you ever been fighting a problem, but it's not the real problem or it's not the deeper problem? Or you've been trying to solve something and it's really, you're just solving the symptoms of it? I think we've all done that before relationally. We've done that even you know, physically with our, with our own, own health and, and, and so many other ways. Um, an example is that I, I got a call that there were mice in one of my rental properties. And this was rented by some, some girls who, they're college girls. And so they're like, hey, you know, hey, we're a little concerned and, you know, mice. And so I, I went over there with some traps and some poison. Yeah, sorry, Mickey and Minnie are going to have to die. Uh, that's just the way it is. And so when I arrived, the girls were giving me their theories as to why the mice we're in the basement. And I was listening to them and, you know, okay, that's nice, that's nice. And so finally I walked down uh, to lay the traps and I noticed that there were several open boxes of food all throughout the basement. And so I laid all the traps and, and I got the girl who's kind of the point leader of the house and I grabbed a box and I showed it to the girl and I said, hey, look, these traps I just laid, they're going to kill the mice. They're going to kill the mice that are here. But a fed mouse is a house mouse, right? You guys know what I'm saying? You keep feeding the mice, and guess what? They're moving in. They are in the house. So I said, you need to stop feeding the mice, and they'll stop coming back. The symptom was the food, or the the, the real issue was the food being left out. It was a untidy house attracting the presence of the mice. Listen, people are not our enemy. Satan is the great liar. He is the problem. And listen, listen, Jesus is just waiting to solve it ultimately. In the meantime, we are in a battle. We have been given the tools to fight And so every sin begins with a lie that we believe about God's character and our identity. And that reality frees us up to know that when people are in our path that are difficult to love and hard to serve, we can know it's not personal, that the true enemy is principalities and dark forces and strongholds. But here's the greatest way that I believe we take back territory from the enemy. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. And that is we share the gospel with somebody. Every time we share the gospel with somebody, every time we invite them to church, every time that we enter into a spiritual, spiritual relationship or influence relationship in their life, we take back a little bit more territory. In Brentwood Church, here's what that means. That means that we are active every day 
in this fight. And I think that's I think sometimes that's why, you know, especially men, men, men get bored with church, they get they get bored with spirituality, they get bored with the Bible. You know why? Because they forgot they're in a fight. It, it, it's just like, and why am I doing this? This is kind of this religious routine, and, and what does religion do? It just, just kind of leads you, you down the wrong path. But man, when you wake up every day and you know that you're in a fight, a fight for territory in your home, a fight for territory at work, and that people aren't the enemy, that, 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 that Satan, the evil one, the liar, the great twister is the enemy, man, watch out. So, What's next? The next reality is the key to everything. It's the reason that the Bible alone is not enough for the church to thrive. Yes, I said that. The Bible alone is not enough for the church to thrive. Look, what is? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. You know what? The Bible means nothing more than a story, more than a religious book without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also testifies tells, shares to us about this. Stop right there. Our faith, hope, and love are completely driven by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. You remember we talked about this in Upon This Rock series, John 14. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit advocates, teaches, and reminds. You right now have the Spirit of God in you. And Hebrews goes on to describe this. Talks about the function of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the life of those who believe and follow Jesus. Verse 16 of Hebrews 10. This is the covenant I will make with him after that time says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Hearts and minds, hearts and minds, which takes us back to that truth. The church is built on internal transformation, not external performance. If you believe and follow Jesus, do you realize that you have God's spirit in you? His law or his laws are on your heart and mind. Now, it's important to understand, not the Mosaic law. No, 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 not, not sacrificial you know, rites and, and rituals and dietary laws and wash your hands here and make sure you take this outside the camp. Not those laws. No, Jesus' law. Remember? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor out of the flow of your love for God. You will love other people and you'll love them as yourself. Because you understand your identity in God through Christ. Man, this law is not burdensome. This is not you trekking to Jerusalem to, to kill a, a bull every, every year. No, no, no. This is you living out the laws of love. It's transformational. It's internal. That means God is remaking you to think, feel, speak, and act like him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's almost like God knew the Bible wouldn't be enough to guarantee success for his church. If he just gave us a book, if he just gave us a story, if he just gave us the structure of it, it wouldn't be enough. 
There had to be something. And so Jesus was sent to live among us, to die for us, and now his spirit is in us. That is why the church is the hope of the world, because it's in us, transforming us from the inside out. Then he adds this. I love this. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That is the description of a grace-driven God. Yes, God is a God of justice. No doubt about it. God is a, a God of condemnation. No doubt about it. But at his core, he is grace-driven. God doesn't want his church filled with shame. Bramwell Church, this is what makes the church, global historical church that we are a part of, the hope of the world. Number three, the church is grace-driven, not shame-filled. Every other world religion is based upon shame. Did you measure up? And if you didn't, shame. The church is grace-driven. You come as you are, and God will work with that. Humility and surrender are the building blocks of the gospel. Man, when you get a bunch of people who ask for and receive the grace of God, and they know it's coming from God's work and not their own work, Man, those people become more graceful people, more loving people, more powerful in the context in which they've been placed. Not only that, but grace-driven people are contagious to be around. Don't you want to be around people who just exude grace? You know, hey, when you blow something up, when you spill something, when you drop it, when you drop the ball, you know, whatever it is, their response is, hey, it's okay. It's okay, we're, we're gonna clean this up together. Instead of, why'd you do that? You're an idiot. Who, who, do, who do you wanna be around? Who do you wanna be influenced by? Who are you drawn to? So, let's get practical. We're gonna go through these three things practically. I wanna have some fun. I want to take a little personal inventory, maybe a little pop quiz, if you will. So let's evaluate these three things, these three ways that make us the hope of the world, the church, and where we fit in them, how we're, how we're sort of winning in them. So here we go. The church is built upon ex, um, internal transformation, not external performance. Let me ask you something. Is the Holy Spirit or is people's perception Leading your thoughts, feelings, words, and action. Which one of those? The Holy Spirit or people's perception? What do the neighbors think or what is the Holy Spirit saying? Now, just answer that honestly. Just take your own personal inventory. If people are leading you more than the Holy Spirit, then here's what I want you to remind yourself of. Remind yourself that Jesus has done all the work and you are freed up to love the people. This will empower you to be the hope of the world, the irresistible church. You are being transformed from the inside out. What God is doing in you, not what you are doing outside of you. Next. 
The church knows the real enemy and takes back his territory every day. Have you been reminded today that you're in a fight every day, even right now? Even right now, the, the, enemy, the enemy gets a crack at all this. He does. He, he gets to sit in here. And, and he gets to, to divide. He gets to whisper. He gets to get you arguing. Have you been reminded of that today? Are you fighting for your faith every day, even right now? If not, here's what I want you to do this week. Remember, cover to cover. Read the Bible, cover to cover. First thing we wanted you to do in the series. I want you to read Ephesians chapter 6. And get renewed in the full armor of God. Now, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, Ephesians chapter 6, just read the whole thing. And, and you will be enlightened on exactly what we're talking about. You'll realize that we fight the enemy not only through the armor of God. And you'll know what that is. But we secure territory through the salvation of others. When we share our faith, when we invest and invite people to church. In fact, we, we have a series coming up in, in the early fall. You asked for it. We've been, we've been tell, talking to you guys about it all summer. This is all about you investing in some people who don't believe and follow Jesus and inviting them to the church. And you know what? When you invest in them spiritually and when you, when you love them where they are and gain influence in their life, and you invite them to church or you invite them into your home, you're taking back territory. And that's what the church does. So finally, the church is grace-driven, not shame-filled. Let me ask you this personally. Do you feel like God hasn't forgiven you of sins from your past? I, I know sometimes, man, something from my past will just come up and just, just show up on my front porch. And I'll just think, Ah, why do I feel, why do I just feel all those feelings again? If, if that's you, just, just remember. Remember what Jesus did. He did the work on the cross. Not you, through religious duty and ritual. Our new spiritual condition is one of complete righteousness and holiness. Jesus' forgiveness is full. It is once for all. And so this internal transformation of our spirit happened at the point of belief in the gospel and we spend the rest of our lives allowing those truths to transform and renew our minds and our behavior. And if you've sought forgiveness from God, that forgiveness has been given. It is done. It is forgotten. Our lives become one big response to the finished work of Christ. So if you're carrying around shame, if you're carrying around false guilt, you give that baggage right back to the enemy because Jesus is already taking care of it. You say, I don't want that. I don't want that. Here's why this is all important. And then I want to give some of you an opportunity to believe and follow Jesus. And, and we're going we're gonna to help you make that decision today. But, but I, I just want, I want to talk to us all for just a second. Here, here's why this is all important. We live, we live in the daily practice of these truths. That, that the church is about internal transformation, not external performance. And that we know who the real enemy is. And we, man, we take back some territory every, 
every day. And we know that we are grace-driven people. We are the hope of the world. We are the hope of the world. And Jesus has made us an unstoppable force in a culture that's getting even crazier every day. Let's be that.